Welcome to Breaking the Surface, where we break into a delicious beverage and also dive into the topic at hand. I'm one of your co-hosts, Taylor Kramer. I'm the owner and lead producer for Cold Shower Media. I'm Beth Milligan. I'm a journalist here in Traverse City. And I'm another friend. I am Anthony Weber, and I am a pastor and an ethics teacher, and I am something of a fashion icon when it comes to oversized sweaters. The point here is that we want to go beyond the talking points to get to the depths of what is happening in our world. It should also be said that this podcast is part of the Boardman Review Podcast Collective in collaboration with Cold Chart Media. The Podcast Collective aims to provide unique content curated by the Boardman Review, the creative culture and outdoor lifestyle journal of Northern Michigan. Welcome to episode 22 of Breaking the Surface. Today, the drink that I would like to discuss is this coffee I got from a place called, it's either M.I. Coffee or My Coffee. I think you probably say My Coffee. But if you live here in the Traverse City area, they've got kind of some stations and parking lots around the area. There's one in Interlochen. There's one in Chum's Corners. I think they might move around some. I'm not sure. But I have started to stop in there and get a coffee on the way to podcast recording. And this one I have today is called a Lake Anne, and it is the only one I have ordered there, and I haven't moved past this yet. I've been there numerous times, and every time I pull back in, I think, maybe I'll try another one, but I like this one so much. It remains the only one I've had, and I have a feeling I'll get stuck on the next one just like I got stuck on this one. So Lake Anne is a blend that they have? It's a blend. Well, it's a mix of all kinds of things. No, no, it's like a sweet, sugary coffee. Got it. All right. Um, I'm not sure why they call it Lake Anne, but I haven't asked any questions. I've just kept sipping. Just just sucked it down. I've had a mocha from there, and it was excellent. I I don't typically drink much else other than just like black coffee when I go to to a coffee shop, but I tried their mocha, and it was excellent. So there you go. My coffee, stop in. All right. So the plan with today's episode is I think to do kind of a, a round table discussion as we're still in the early stages of 2022, we are going over some remnants of events that are bleeding over into the new year. And also just kind of as a whole, going to discuss some things that are of interest and maybe of importance. And so the thing that I wanted to start with is um, the the case surrounding the January 6th insurrection and how there has been some movement on that front. We are it, to me and and what I'm reading and what I'm seeing is it sounds like, and maybe I'm being too optimistic, but we might actually get some answers about this stuff and that people are going to be asked questions. People that we want to have to be asked questions are going to be asked questions. I, I had seen yesterday that Ivanka Trump is going to have to be speaking um, regarding what took place and what she saw because she was in such close proximity to President Trump at the time. I think that it's going to be really interesting to hear what she has to say. And there's just a lot of players that are involved with this. And so for me personally, I was thinking about this today and just how remembering back to the the day of the insurrection. And I, I texted my family and I texted my little brothers as, you know, I've lived uh, a little bit longer of a life than they have. And I just told them uh, without trying to sound too wise or anything, but just say, you guys, you need to remember this day. Like this is just an absolutely crazy day and something that we hope that we never, ever see again in this country. And I just remember being in utter shock on that day at what was unfolding. And then you fast forward and it's like maybe because of just how life is right now and with social media and just the speed at which we move from one thing to the next, it doesn't seem like as big of a deal as what I hoped it would remain. 
because we're still trying to figure out what exactly happened. We don't have these answers. We can't just, um, you know, tuck it away and say, well, we figured that one out and, and now it'll never happen again. It, to me, it seems like we still are living in a country where something like that could happen again. And so I was, I was wondering why with an event that was so monumental and so historic, have we been able to just in some ways kind of breeze past it? And one thing that I landed on, I'd be curious if you, if you think this is that I've mentioned, um, this kind of pendulum that can swing of, of authoritarianism. If you want to label this pendulum authoritarianism, and if you're willing to, um, admit that this pendulum can swing either to the right or to the left, but that it can kind of spend certain times in certain areas. And I had said this a while ago that I don't think that the left is exempt necessarily from practicing some of these, uh, authoritarianist things, but that I saw more immediate danger in what was taking place on the right. And I thought that the insurrection was a prime, prime example of that, like of why I think that there's these authoritarian tendencies that are taking place on the right and that they're more detrimental. Why, why are people struggling to grasp that? Particularly people on the right. And what I landed at is that there's things happening still with the pandemic and COVID-19 where there's still, you know, certain um, policies in place, uh, mask mandates or schools still being virtual, all these different things that people on the right can look at and say, no, that is actually authoritarian. They don't want us to get back to life as normal. And so as long as there's something um, like the COVID-19 pandemic still playing out, it just it's like this huge opportunity for people who should be concerned about what happened with the insurrection to to kind of brush it off and say, no, actually, look what's going on here. I haven't been able to get back to my life as normal. So that's more of a problem than what may have happened on January 6th. And so I think to me, that's where I've landed at why it's so difficult to have a discussion and to really even suss out who thinks the insurrection was a big deal. Does any of that make sense? Yeah, I think so. I mean. I think part of it is that a lot of, you know, everyday American Republicans kind of take their cue from the talking points of the main political leaders of the party and or, you know, right leaning news outlets like Fox News. And so if the main talking points, you know, which quickly reversed last year from, you know, pretty much widespread acknowledgement of the seriousness of what had happened to then the Republicans quickly downplaying it. Um, you know, as, as, as a kind of, I don't know, a, a mere incident or even an act of patriotism or however you want to rewrite it. But I think once that became the dominant narrative of the party as a whole, and then the media outlets associated with the party, that became, you know, the talking point that everyday Republicans parroted. And so I think it's a challenge now, especially with the work of the Congressional Committee which is investigating the insurrection. I mean, they have established legitimacy. It is a bipartisan committee. There's Liz Cheney and other uh, Republicans serving on that committee. Um, they've been given legitimacy by the courts. The Supreme Court this week ruled against Donald Trump and is releasing White House records to the committee um, that are, you know, have everything from phone logs to people who called the vice president and president that day to handwritten notes from the staff about what was happening in the White House while the insurrection was unfolding. All of that could be, you know, pretty damning at some point in terms of I think you know the committee is really trying to establish was there some sort of conspiracy did the the president work in any way to obstruct uh, Congress's proceedings on the six? 
Um, that committee is supposed to deliver a report this summer. They're up against a deadline because the midterms are in the fall and it's widely expected that de Democrats are probably going to lose uh, some congressional power. And if Republicans take over, they're certainly going to kill that committee. Um, so they're kind of on a time crunch now to deliver that. But for me, it's just, you know, the, the narrative has become so politically driven, tied to this idea of the steal and the illegitimacy, quote unquote, of the election. That doesn't matter, just like the election itself, how many facts we get about what happened on January 6th, um, what the committee finds, even if it's upheld by the courts, even if it's clearly documented, you know, overwhelming evidence. We're already seeing phone calls from Republicans that day. You know, to me, it's just we live in a time where it does not matter what the evidence is. It, people are going to stick to the narrative that they find comforting or compelling. Um, and that's what's frustrating me about it, all the stories that we're talking about today and other days is that we're just kind of committed to our own partisan narratives, regardless of the facts of reality. And that is just making people increasingly separated from each other. Another side story that's of interest is more and more information coming out about Giuliani working with people to establish false electoral college representatives and then filing false votes into the archives, both I think national and at a state level. And I just have seen articles on that the last couple of days. It is suddenly uh, boiling over and that's going to be a really interesting one to watch because that's some pretty serious implications for that. I wonder, Taylor, coming back to your point, if part of the reason it's hard for people or why we're not seeing it splashed more front and center is it, if other people are like me, there is this weird kind of sense of disbelief, like really America had an insurrection. It seems so foreign. I think of it, this might be an odd analogy, but after my heart attack, I spent so many years, in fact, I probably still do to some degrees going, no way. There is no way. <laughs> right. Mm -hmm. And yet there it was, but it's so unsettling to think that those types of things are possible. I, I still find that I have a hard time wrapping my mind around it. And I just remember after the insurrection, seeing global news sources, Russia, for example, was gleeful that the U S had an insurrection. Other nations where things like this are common. They all recognized it for what it was. Like this was just for them, for many of them, that's how life is. For us, it was a shock to the system. And I, I just wonder how much of that is, man, if you acknowledge that we are the kind of nation that does that kind of thing, frankly, it puts every future election suddenly on shaky ground. Like depending who wins or loses, what's going to happen? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's as I'm just looking at like my peers and the, I'll just say the everyday person is it does seem like part of the reason why there's not concern like is I live in the social media age. And so if I come across some people who are um, just really all up in arms about, you know, the continuation of masks or schools still being virtual and things like that, is that in my mind, then I have been presented what they, what I think they have deemed to be most important. And then if they don't share about something like the insurrection and, and our democracy being undermined through an event like that, then I have to assume that they don't care about it as much as they care about having to wear a mask, you know, when they go into a school or something like that. And so then I am, and I don't think this is right, but I'm, I'm kind of taking what they've presented to me and saying, I can't believe that they care more about a cloth mask than they do the fact that people broke into the Capitol and were trying to delegitimize a legitimate 
election and people and, died. Yes. And, and so I, I'm trying, I think one is still kind of abstract. Like you said, I can't believe that this happened in America. And so people are, they're um, maybe less impacted by this on a day to day, this abstract idea of our democracy being undermined um, rather than this thing that's front and center in their face still, you know, being asked to wear a mask or, or the, yet again, their kid is um, doing virtual school because they were exposed to, to someone with COVID. I, maybe it's that what is front and center in your everyday life. I'm having issues kind of working through that and understanding what do people value? Yeah. And you know, this is obviously it's as a topic that's not going to go away. I mean, one, you know, because the report is still coming, but two, what you were talking about Taylor with the elections being on shaky ground, um, I think we were going to talk about the, you know, Voting Rights Act discussion this week, too. And we can this kind of ties into that. But if if the goal, you know, I, I think we've maybe have mentioned this in past shows, but if the goal of Republicans right now is to sow doubt into the electoral election system and the idea that, you know, the 20 um, the election was stolen and that we uh, can't trust the election results, you know, obviously the damage of that is if you destabilize trust in democracy, that can go for both parties. Um, but also, I think, you know, I think I'm quite concerned and I have read quite a few think pieces about this, about what's going to happen in 2024 with a presidential election. And like uh, a lot of, I consider myself to be democratic or left-leaning, but I think a lot of people in those circles were really hoping for the passage of this Voting Rights Act to ensure that Republican-driven states can't write legislation that could destabilize the next election and make it very difficult for example, minorities or people of color or Democrats to vote um, who those camps are often in. And there's just so much legislation being passed across the country right now that's making it extremely difficult to vote, that's giving the possibility for states to have partisan committees overturn election results or delegitimize um, electors. So that's what I was hoping for was some kind of federal legislation that would shore up and protect those rights. And unfortunately, we had a vote this week in, in the Congress on the filibuster, and that failed with two Democrats joining and the Republicans and shooting that down. And without that, I genuinely, that was a pretty big defeat for Biden, along with his social spending bill. And without that, I don't know what's going to happen in the next few years. I'm, I'm legitimately worried about what's going to happen to our election process. I wonder if... <clears throat> Part of the reason you see people focus on um, issues like masking and mandates versus the insurrection is that with masking and mandates, it's something that's real tangible and that you can have an immediate impact on. Like I can decide right now to wear a mask or not wear a mask. And I can create an environment in my home right now that either promotes it or doesn't. Same with vaccines. All of that is something that it, there's this, there's a sense in which I know I can have immediate impact and my voice and my presence will matter. But it comes to the insurrection. Like for me, if I post something about it, what happens? It, a little bit, it feels like yelling into the void, right? Because that's, it's important, but I don't have, I can't put my skin in the game in a way that feels practical to me. And I'm, I'm not saying that's the right way to think about mm -hmm. it. That's just, I think the way it feels. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think for me personally, it's important probably for everyone that interacts on social media. We, we see what people want us to see and then the rest we assume. And I'm afraid that for myself, I'm assuming the worst of people and I'm, I'm, um, 
kind of projecting what I think their values are, even though they don't always give me enough to go off of to determine what their actual values are. Um, and so I think that's something we discussed this a little bit in our previous episode of figuring out how to maneuver that moving forward in 2022, uh, is going to be really, really important because these are conversations that we have to have and, um, they're important. They really are. So here's another fascinating thing. At least it's fascinating to me. I'll see if I can convince both of you that it's fascinating also. Um, this, I think, is an example of an issue that kind of fits between those two places. So I just saw an article today that was asking why there isn't more news coverage of the football, the, 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 the physician for Michigan's football program. Um, they just, he was convicted of, I think, over a thousand people were abused by him. Maybe convicts is not the right word, but a lawsuit was just won by the victims, like 400 and some million dollar lawsuit against U of M for a thousand plus victims of this doctor. And the article's headline was, why isn't this being talked about more? One of the things they mentioned was because the victims were male mm-hmm. versus female and that it's just a different dynamic. Um, and that's not, I wasn't planning to talk about that aspect of it, but something that struck me was a story like that even though I am not directly impacted by that. Um, I work with kids. I have kids. I can take something like that and in a sense, learn from it. And, you know, at church, we can shore up our care over kids to make sure nothing happens to them. Um, I'm on a board of a school. We could do the same thing. I could get involved in a community. Like there's ways in which, even though that issue is something that doesn't specifically touch my life, it can translate into an immediate kind of concern that's a boots on the ground, this can make a difference. Uh, and, and so I've I've struggled with, you know, what all do you post? Because sometimes the issue, <laughs> it, it feels so separate. It's like, I don't want to be a keyboard warrior where I'm just virtue signaling by the things that I want others to know that I care about. And yet they do matter. Um, there's something to be said about just bringing them into the light but the stuff that really gets momentum tends to be the stuff that's right in front of us that we can do something about. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I, to be honest, I, the majority of content that I see people sharing is things that they are personally outraged about that affect them directly. And maybe that goes to what you were saying, Anthony, with like things like vaccines and masks. I mean, it, it makes sense that that, you know, things that you have to make day-to-day decisions about or that impact your personal life, of course, would be the things that you might care about the most. I think I, I think I wish in the kind of keyboard warrior universe that there would be more outrage that is other victim driven than self victim driven, if that makes sense, because that would reflect some sort of level of empathy or compassion that I find frustratingly absent from our society. A lot of times where it's so individualistic, it's so me based that all of our outrage, outrage is poured into a funnel. Even our political outrage is, you know, often driven about how we anticipate decisions might impact our personal lives. 
and that's okay. But I just, I, I see a lack of a broader conversation of how will this affect others? You know, and I see that in everything from CRT conversations where I cover school board meetings and white people are just so outraged about the idea of their children learning about black history and black people are standing in the same meeting experiencing day-to-day racism and saying, we need to talk about this. And there's a complete disconnect between those groups. You know, there's just a complete lack of understanding a lot of times among white audiences about what black people go through because they don't experience it themselves. And so all of our outrage and conversations are centered in our own lived experiences and very, I think, not often enough reflect other people's experiences. And that story, Anthony, might be an example. If you have had a history of abuse, which is much more common in women than men. Mm-hmm. I think maybe that's why the Larry Nasser scandal at MSU got more attention than the scandal at U of M, even though there mm-hmm. are a tragic number of victims in both cases. And I don't think there's any difference in victimhood between a male or a female victim. Even the settlement payments that the male victims at U of M got was you know, less than half of what the female victims at MSU got. And so, that's more of a deeper conversation probably about why that happened. But I do think it still reflects this idea of, you know, we tend to talk about things that impact us more. And I think NASA got more attention because there are many more female victims typically um, of abuse. It resonated, it resonated with, with a broader, broader audience. audience. I'm not mm-hmm. saying absolutely yep. that it should, but yeah, we're sort of lacking this muscle of how do we care about things that might affect other people, but not necessarily us. No, Beth, that's a great point. I, I think it's a difference between like, if I look around, let's, let's take the issue of race and I go, you know what? I'm good. <laughs> I'm a white man. I'm I can't all right. Therefore conclude that. <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I feel okay about it. I think I've found, I can't therefore conclude therefore yeah. we're good because it just isn't considering where someone else is at. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I had actually on my Facebook memories I had shared in my, in my wisdom last year had talked about this idea on Facebook of um, we have may have this tendency to convince ourselves of our own poverty as an excuse not to give to others. And, you know, I don't have enough money to give. Um, I don't, my freedom is being fringed, infringed upon right now. And so how can I concern myself with, you know, f- others freedom? And so I think, yeah, it's kind of that same idea of convincing ourselves of poverty of something there's something taking place in my life that is cutting me off from what I need. And so I can't possibly concern myself with what's impacting. Other and that's people. definitely something I think we've seen mm-hmm. with the pandemic and even now going into 2022, just talking about news stories that are kind of, you know, prevalent right now, obviously Omicron's like everywhere, pretty much like everyone I know has COVID right now, even vaccinated, boosted, it doesn't seem to matter. A lot of those people who have those protections are doing okay, but it's just, it's just everywhere. And so, you know, that, is a recurring theme throughout the pandemic too, which is just like, it is not as important to me if I accidentally expose or infect someone else as it is important for me to have a sense of personal freedom and autonomy over my own body and what I choose to wear or what I choose to inject in myself. And the conversation remains so individualistic. And we've talked about that before in the show. But I think it's kind of a a peril of where our country is that we're so young as a country (laughs) and so based in in an individualistic ethos that I feel like we lack a lot of maturity and perspective and empathy that maybe other countries have or a sense of communal well-being where it seems like in America, we're really focused on our individual well-being and 
not, you know, how this, how is the community doing of which I am a part, you know? Yeah. I didn't know if we plan to spend this much time on this Avenue, but it's, it's important to think about because when we value other people, when we consider, um, what we might be putting other people at risk for, it's, it's saving them. It's preserving their goodwill for the future when we then will need something in the future and they understand that we treated them with, with respect. And so then in the future we can come together and get things done. And right now it's just way too tit for tat. It's like, I'm not going to value you. And we forget that that means when I have a problem in the future, that they're not going to then value me because I didn't take the time to value them. And so I think, yeah, it's this cyclical thing. Um, just like we can value each other and work with each other um, down the line. If you don't do that, it leaves no room for, for compromise. Don't you think, Anthony? I mean, we've talked before, but I would like to hear your thoughts about this, about, you know, we've, we've said in past discussions, you have to be careful of what you do as, for example, a member of a, or supporter of a political party, that it is not something that you would want enacted on the other party. So you would not going forward, want, um, you know, every election to be destabilized or questioned because that's really not good for anyone in a democracy, regardless Mm -hmm. of the party. And that's, you know, so often the frustration I feel about what we're going through right now with this uh, big steel lie is that it, it, to me, it just threatens all future elections. It's not good for either party. Yeah. It's that idea of only do those things that you are comfortable with and would encourage other people to do. Um, it's a form of the golden rule. I mean, Immanuel Kant has a form of this as well, but that's the idea. Live like you would want those around you to live is probably mm-hmm. a good way to summarize it. Yeah. Do you want every election, like if uh, if a Republican wins this next election, how will Republicans respond if Democrats are convinced it was stolen? They go through all the different steps that the Republicans did this last time. They go to Washington and they crash into the courthouse. Like if you just envision everything Mm -hmm. turned around, it is almost impossible for me to imagine that some type of understanding and grace would be extended where conservatives be going, yep, we get it. We were there. Um, And it's never going to happen. I was thinking about it when I was reading reviews of Biden's Mm -hmm. press conference, his (laughs) epic press conference, as I understand it. Uh, And things like people are angry about this one clip where he told a reporter his Mm -hmm. question was stupid. Like, how unpresidential. (laughs) I seem to remember that in the last four years. There were quite a few unpresidential. (laughs) That happened. There were quite a few of those. It's like there was no understanding that, wait a minute, this was... This was what I laughed and chuckled at and thought that was a strong response before, but now it's somehow demeaning to the office of president. Like just this idea that we try to see the world with consistency. I think that probably is what gets to me as much as anything else. We can have differences of agreement about what's good and what's not, but man, just the practice of consistency, seeing, seeing the world through a similar lens at all places and all times. And that's hard for all of us to do, including us. Right. I mean, it's, we're not exempt from bias, but, Man, I I really thought about it today when I was reading stuff. I didn't listen to Biden's press conference. I couldn't tell you the last time I've listened to a presidential Mm -hmm. press conference. I almost always read afterwards because that's when stuff gets fact-checked and things like that. Uh, But yeah, it just really struck me, the the two-sided nature of the response now versus two years ago. I think, you know, that press conference was, to me, the standout line was, you know, he was asked about if his, 
you know, first year was a disappointment or if he had perhaps like overpromised what he could deliver to the American people. And his response was, you know, a bit defensive and said he didn't, he just never expected the um, sort of stalwart nature of Republican opposition. And I was like, what are you talking about? <laughs> and what political system have you been a part of for either side where you yeah, anticipate yeah. that there would not be roadblocks from the opposing party in this political climate in our country? How many decades has he been in Washington? He's like, you know, yeah, he's like, he's a career, you know, veteran of the Senate. And so that just kind of, you know, for whatever, again, I, you know, you guys know that I lean democratic, but I always believe for Anthony's, you know, point of being consistent to talk about the flaws of your own party and the challenges. And I have, it's really challenging with Biden sometimes because, you know, he is a bit older. Well, he is older. <laughs> he is a bit tired. I think he's, he kind of stumbles in these press conferences. He doesn't always inspire a lot of confidence um, to be honest. And I think he's doing the best he can comp compared, you know, handling the pandemic to the past administration. But yeah, that was a good example of sometimes you're just like, I, I don't know, man, <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So this brings up an interesting topic. I remember when Biden was running, I had a hard time finding anybody who was really excited about Biden as a president. Like they were hoping for a different candidate from the Democrats. Mm -hmm. And once he got into office, in some ways, kind of the spark, uh, spark makes it sound positive. A lot of the vitriol went off of at least my feed and Facebook because there, nobody was jumping on and soundly defending Biden mm. on stuff. So there's the, no re reactions. Yeah. 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 Like, um, that he didn't have this huge following of people who were just all into whatever Biden did, like from the get go, um, even, uh, the one year respective or retrospective that I've seen some magazines doing, even the ones that would lean left have been like, Oh, it's been a mixed bag for Biden this year. So I was telling you guys, I might bring this up in the, in the topic today at church. We're going through the book of revelation, which is where in pop culture, you get references to things like the mark of the beast and the antichrist and all these crazy Hollywood movies. Right? So presidents have had this great legacy of always being pegged as the antichrist. And they'll have this huge list of all these. And it's, I'll just say it's stupid the way people arrive at this. I think it's a, it's a terrible injustice to the Bible. That's a whole different topic. But nonetheless, you name the president uh, for pretty far back. They're just like, this one's got to be the big bad. Um, Obama, you can find tons of stuff online about all kinds of reasons. Trump, tons of stuff online. I started looking up Biden. It's pretty much just crickets. Like nobody like out there seems to think. not charismatic enough to be in the <laughs> Right, yeah. right. Exactly. Boring. Exactly. Boring. Yeah. Uh, I, <laughs> that was, I hate to say it, but kind of amusing. Like even the, even people who are most into trying to identify someone who holds his positions as being a, a really nefarious character. I think it didn't take too long for them to go. There's no way. There's no oh, way it can be him. That's good. I'm picturing <laughs> Biden scrolling Twitter and being like, man, I'm not even trending as the antichrist today. <laughs> right, what, right. What's going on? Well, you know, to be honest, like this is what really worries me about the next couple of years from a democratic perspective is that we don't have, you know, I don't think a lot of leaders inspiring a lot of confidence among the democratic party right now. Biden is pretty boring. I think he was a welcome relief after Trump of just like a stable adult in the White House who wasn't going to make, you know, everything go crazy with rocking the boat. And I think he's, you know, 
he's fit the role that the country needed, I think, at the time. But I certainly think going into the next presidential election, it seems almost certain that Trump is going to run, provided he's still healthy and alive. And I just, you know, the feelings of, you know, hate or fear or anger are such powerful motivators for people to support, you know, a particular candidate. And I think Trump really riles up these very strong emotions in his face. And I don't see that in the Democratic Party. It it really worries me. Um, And I especially don't see it when you have, you know, uh, Democrats like Manchin or Cinema, who blocked the filibuster this week and could have given us the Voting Rights Act, could have given us a huge sweeping climate change and social change bill, did not. That is so deflating for Democratic voters who then have to wonder, why did I even put these people in Congress if they can't get mm-hmm. anything done? And I think that's the feeling among a lot of Democrats right now is knowing that big change needs to happen, knowing we have to tackle climate change, knowing there's injustice in wealth inequity and all of these things that are major, major issues, as well as going against a very well-oiled machine that's trying to destabilize elections. You really need powerful, passionate leaders in the Democratic Party right now to inspire action on those issues. And it's not happening. And my fear is that's going to be so deflating that I certainly think the midterms are going to go terribly this year for Democrats. And I'm quite worried about the presidential race, particularly if legislation keeps passing in Republican states that allows those elections to tilt even more in the Republicans' favor. So I have to say it's a pretty demoralizing time in 2022 to want change in the Democratic Party and just not seeing it happening. Yeah, from what I had seen, I wouldn't be able to quote specific statistics, but that, you know, there's large sums of people that just were otherwise identifying as Democratic Democrats that are no longer saying, well, what's the point of even identifying as a Democrat? If, like you said, there's not this kind of been this robust response to the last um, president that they were expecting in these sweeping changes that they wanted to see take place. And so I don't know, the kids say they, you know, the bag has been fumbled. And I think that Biden in, in a lot of ways is fumbling the bag and that it is going to be interesting to see not necessarily that people that otherwise identified as Democrats are now Republicans by any means, but are they going to be passionate enough to show up and vote? And if they're not, then you're going to see this voter turnout really drastically impact some of the things that Democrats would want to get done, I think. And I do think it's going to be like Manchin's last term. Like, I think, you know, I think he's been pretty hurt. Um, And I think progressives are definitely going to challenge him and send him on some of these really, really centrist Democrats who have kind of hurt the chances of these bills going through. I think there will be strong progressive challenges. But again, what you need is a charismatic Democratic presidential candidate who can at least bring some of the country that's in the middle or even right-leaning over to some sort of unified vision. And I I don't see it happening, but Anthony, I'm curious what you think. Well, who's the candidate on either side that has a unifying centrist vision? Yeah, I guess there's really, really not. I mean, (laughs) that's what, that's what sucks. (laughs) Yeah. It's pretty extreme. So maybe someone will emerge and both. I mean, the problem is Republicans are so terrified of Trump that I cannot see a viable challenger to him. If he runs in the presidential election, I don't think anyone in the party will try to take on the throne. You don't think DeSantis won't? Uh, I do. I do not. I don't. I, I just can't. The All of the major Republicans seem so afraid of crossing Trump's path for reasons I don't totally understand. But can you? I, I think it'll be it. 
Oh, no, sorry. go ahead. I was going to say, do you think DeSantis or someone would, would challenge Trump? Well, I yeah, I've seen some articles about DeSantis. Okay. So one of the things is he's a bit of a folk hero because of his leadership in Florida in response to COVID, you know, being very much stay open, don't do the mandates. And in the last couple of weeks when Trump has been defending vaccination uh, pretty strongly, like this is part of my legacy that's really important to me. I'm. It looks like there's a lot of infighting happening, and I'm really curious uh, what will be the fallout from that. Hmm. Yeah, I don't. In some ways, I agree. And then in other ways, I'm like, yeah, but also there's large swaths of the Republican Party that are more apt to welcome Marjorie Taylor Greene than they are like a Liz Cheney. <laughs> so that doesn't give me much hope. Uh, so I think there'll be a couple things. We really are ranging today, aren't we? <laughs> uh, going into the midterm elections, a couple things that could swing pretty drastically. One is depending where the Supreme Court lands and all the discussion around abortion rights, mm -hmm. depending what happens with um, the virus. Like if it fades away over the summer, that sure looks like a win for Biden uh, versus if it doesn't, it could be disastrous. Mm -hmm. The third thing would be uh, the stock market, gas prices, that type of thing, depending where those things go. And there seems like there's so many things that are up in the air about all three of those mm -hmm. that until there's some solidity there, it feels like there could be an, what's it called? An October surprise. Mm -hmm. Is that a thing? November. Um, November surprise. It's a surprise with a month attached to it uh, where, where something last minute uh, could really, what happens with Russia and the Ukraine? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, another big issue going on right now. And how do people perceive Biden to handle whatever's going to happen? I feel like there's so many things in the fire right now um, that a lot's wide open. And like I mentioned, you know, this report will be coming out in the summer. Um, it, Again, because of the dominant narrative and the sort of already dismissal of a lot of Republicans of even the legitimacy of this committee, I don't know how widely accepted the committee's findings will be, but it could be because now they have these White House records that Trump was desperately trying to block that they're going through right now, hundreds and hundreds of pages. They're subpoenaing all these witnesses. And because the Supreme Court has made it clear that they believe the committee has a right to investigate, I anticipate that more people will be complying with this, these subpoenas because the ones who have been defying like Steve Bannon are fighting, you know, court orders or, or, you know, facing jail time. So I think it's possible that there are findings and evidence released in this report. They have said, the committee has said that they're going to release these documents publicly, not just their report, but the documents that are the, the comprise the evidence. It's possible that there's enough damning things in there that it make it very, very clear that not only Trump, but major Republicans who are running for re-election in the fall were involved in orchestrating some sort of undermining of January 6th proceedings that it could be so damning that maybe it hurts some of those Republicans. I don't know. I think there's a lot of people in the base who are just going to be like, I don't care. I'm Republican for life, no matter what. But I will be interested to see what comes out of it because they now have quite a bit of evidence to go through. I forgot to mention Jeffrey Epstein's black book also. Oh, if yeah. that ever becomes public, that's a wild card. Yeah. You're sort of, are you implying that there might be some Republican names in there? I actually think there'll probably be names <laughs> from both parties. <laughs> I think right. both. Yeah. Yeah. I think we're kidding ourselves if we don't think it'll unsettle everybody. Yeah. I think you're right. So that seems like a really just like optimistic picture for 2022. <laughs> yeah. We're starting off well. <laughs> we are. Yeah. <laughs> There's a lot of, just a lot of things to keep your, keep your eyes on. And um, it, it's amazing. It feels like Biden has in some ways 
been president for only a week and then in other ways for 10 years, just because so many different things are happening. It's hard to keep track of everything. And again, we're still in the midst of, you know, this pandemic. And so I'm really curious to see how things proceed because there's all these things like, you know, elections that, that are happening or going to happen. And they're, they're, they're still falling under this umbrella of COVID-19. And so it's unlike any time that I have ever seen in my life. I haven't lived a very long time, but um, from what I'm told, these are pretty crazy times. And I think too, we can talk about this more maybe in future episodes, because I think we're wrapping up, but like, you know, I think Taylor, you had had some interest and maybe we could do this for an upcoming show about, you know, the labor market and how many people are quitting their jobs and what's going on with, you know, workers. And is it true that people don't want to really want to work or, you know, there's huge questions about labor that are definitely pandemic driven, but also like there's, a, if people want to check out, there's a really interesting article in the Washington Post this week about what's, the, I guess they were calling like the memory hole of the pandemic in terms of we have a very distorted sense of time and memory. And this is probably, you can think of examples in your own life, but I, I certainly can of like people like forgetting what age they were because their birthdays were so unmemorable during the pandemic. They didn't mm. have the usual parties and, and milestone celebrations or, you know, people not having prom or graduations or just 2020 to 2022 blends together in this giant kind of time mash that is a really interesting like psychological phenomenon of all of us really being sort of untethered from time and not having a clear sense of time passing. Um, so that's just another trend, but I think all of this stuff like labor, how we function as a society, our interpersonal relationships, our own well-being and memories, like all of this is distorted and affected by the pandemic in ways that I think are going to still be unfolding for, you know, years to come. Great closing thought, Beth. And before we go, you mentioned people having unremarkable birthdays. My birthday is next week. Um, so. I'm busy. That's <laughs> <laughs> that's fine. Uh, it'll just be another unremarkable day. It's fine. <laughs> oh, we'll get. We'll make you a cake. Maybe we'll record a podcast and sing happy birthday right on it. You Who could knows? zoom me a picture of the cake. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. yeah. Oh, exciting. <laughs> well, uh, Beth, it's great to have you back in the in the winter tundra that is Michigan. Hope um, you enjoyed your travels and glad that you're back safe. Um, so we will be back with another episode in two weeks or so. Thanks for being here. 